The scripture reading for this morning is from Psalm 98, not 96, as is in your bulletin. Psalm 98, please stand for the reading of God's Word. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're taking a break from our uh, study of Galatians. We're going to be uh, resuming that in January. In the meantime, over the next few weeks, we're going to uh, touch on the promise, the prophetic hope, and the um, unexpected should have been, but unexpected way in which that promise and prophetic hope was fulfilled with the joy that would be for the whole world in Jesus. We'll look next week at Genesis 3 and the promise of the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. And then after that, we'll look at the prophet Micah and the prophetic hope of a shepherd king who will be his people's peace. And then on Christmas morning, we'll look at Luke chapter 2 and the good news of great joy about the advent or coming of Jesus. We find ourselves between Christ's two advents, his first coming and, and that return that he has promised. Jesus warned us through his parables in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and elsewhere, that this time that we're in right now, between his first coming and his second coming, between the first and final advent, must be a time that's characterized by watchfulness. But Psalm 98 tells us what can characterize our watchfulness. And that's joy. Psalm 98 invites us to joy, joy at the promise of Christ's coming. The Christmas carol, Joy to the World, which we sang, uh, it's based on that poem by Isaac Watts. Uh, it, that poem was inspired by this psalm, by Psalm 98. Uh, we, we sang it already. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I love it. Every Christmas, I feel like we could be singing Joy to the World year-round because Psalm 98 invites us to sing Joy to the World year-round. But joy can seem hard to come by. Why is that? Why do we lack joy? Well, maybe we equate joy with happiness. Like if you're really a joyful Christian, you're a happy, clappy Christian, right? Everything's just always good all the time if you're really a joyful Christian. But 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, says that even though we are sorrowful, we can be always rejoicing. So joy may find expression in a minor key, but it's joy nonetheless. Why do we lack joy? I can say from personal experience that I often lose my joy whenever I lose perspective. Whenever I forget what Jesus has done for me in the past, whenever I've lost sight of what he is going to come to do, and whenever I forget that he is still Emmanuel, God with us by his spirit, he indwells me, he is with his people, he is ever with me, now, whenever I lose that perspective, I tend to lose my joy. And, and maybe you find yourself in the same boat as well. Life, it seems, can become all about right now. Each day feels like an eternity in itself, right? We don't live each day in light of that day. We don't live today in light of the day that is coming. We don't live now in light of the second advent, nor do we keep in mind the first advent. We don't live in this wonderful space in which we live between Christ's first coming and his return. And consequently, we don't sing. This, this psalm invites us to sing for joy, not just to have joy, but to not be able to contain it so that it, that it comes out in, in song. This psalm invites us to that kind of joy. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at the song that we're invited to sing. Two points. First, simple heading, the singers. Who are the singers in this psalm? And then second, the song. What does this psalm tell us about the joyful song that we're invited to sing? So those two points, the singers and the song, but first, let's pray. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. All right, so first, the singers. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the singers of this psalm were the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. Read again with me. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So again, remember, the Psalms were the songbook of God's people. Whenever God's people were gathered in temple worship, they would sing the Psalms. And they would sing this Psalm. They would call to one another to sing a new song to the Lord about the things that he has done for them in the past. So you can picture God's people gathered together, calling to one another to sing this new song in light of past deliverance. Now, what's interesting is that in this psalm, we don't get any, any kind of a historical reference. 
So when we looked at Psalm 107 last week, it was pretty clear that this was a post-exilic psalm, or most likely anyway, a song that was sung after the people of God's return from exile. But not here. They could be reflecting on the exodus. They could be looking back on the time when God delivered his people out of Egypt. They could be reflecting on the exile. It could be that they were reflecting on God's return of his people. It could be that they're just reflecting on the many ways in which God would come alongside and rescue his people yet again. Because his love, as the text says, and the people sang, is a steadfast love. It's an unfailing love. And so consequently, there's always an opportunity for a new song to be sung. Fresh deliverances. Fresh singing. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is unfailing. The point here, though, is not so much what was the historical reference. The point that's being made in these first three verses is that it is God who did the saving. The, the theology just in these first few verses is really rich and beautiful. Take a look at uh, halfway through verse, well, let's just look at verse 1. Sing to the Lord, a new song, the Lord, all caps there. This is Yahweh. This is God's personal name. He invites people to worship him in a personal way. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Wherever you see that phrase, marvelous things, woven throughout the Old Testament, it has to do with God's work, supernatural things. Marvelous in that sense. Marvel at the wondrous works of God. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now, that's an interesting pairing, isn't it? His right hand, his hand of strength. I'm a lefty, so I tend to have an issue with that. But his right hand, for most of y'all, hand of strength. That's the the figure that we're given there. His, His right hand and his holy arm. What does that mean? The fact that it's his holy arm that's referenced points here to the fact that his holiness, also as we see his righteousness, must in some way be satisfied. His salvation that he offers to his people will be an expression of his holiness. Take a look again with me at these verses. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. God is holy. Isaiah, in that great vision before the temple, in the temple before the Lord, right? Holy, 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 the seraphim are singing. Moses, or Isaiah cries out, my, 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 my lips are unclean. I live among an unclean people. My eyes have seen the Lord, right? Holiness. And yet God's holy arm works salvation for his people. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. And then remember how Hebrew poetry works. There's this reinforcement, a building upon itself, a restatement right there in verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. There's Hebrew parallelism. So his salvation, his righteousness are equated with one another. 
God is saying, this is who I am. I will, because of my righteousness, save my people and thus satisfy my holiness. In fact, the expression of my holiness and saving my people is an example of my righteousness. These things are all being woven together. We, we tend to think of God when he saves people as somehow ignoring his holiness for a moment. But his salvation of his people is actually an expression of his perfect holiness. He will be perfectly pure in his steadfast love for his people. He will be unalloyed in his commitment to rescue those whom he has chosen. He is holy. Apart from God's grace, apart from his atoning work in our lives, that holiness of God would, would, would leave us completely terrified and undone. But because his own right hand has satisfied his perfect holiness, we are saved. And he remains forever righteous. God has done the delivering. So verses 1 through uh, 3 here refer to Israel. And, and, and the text tells us the world has seen what he has done. All the ends of the earth, verse 3, have seen the salvation of our God. Israel was meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And so every time that God was delivering Israel, the nations were meant to see it. Who is this God who rescues this people in this way? And so if it's Israel that's singing in verses 1 through 3, then in verses 4 through 6, it's the nations who are being invited to sing because Israel has been delivered. Take a look there with me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now, in Christ, he is the Lord, the King, the personal God to the Gentiles, only in Christ. But in the context of the psalm, Yahweh, the Lord, is the personal God of Israel, of his people. And so the nations are being invited to sing because God has delivered Israel. Why should they sing? Because God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is that through him, the nations will be blessed. And so the nations are being invited to sing because in Israel's salvation, they will know the blessing of God. And, and then you get this amazing picture of not just the nations, but all creation singing. Take a look with me in verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. What, a, what an amazing picture of, of heaven and nature singing. Psalm 96, which we were going to look at this morning until I changed my mind. Uh, verses 11 through 12 says this in Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. 
Last week, we looked at Psalm 107. If you remember, there's that passage in which the, the waves of the sea were lifting the people up and crashing them down. And, and uh, a brother of mine here in the church reminded me of how the sea is such a picture of, of, of chaos. Even, even in the Old Testament, that idea of, of, uh, of, 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 of sin, of evil, of chaos being bound up in the sea. So that by the time you get to Revelation, when it says there's no more sea, it's just a way of saying there's no more discord. There's, there's no more chaos. There's no more evil churning things up and crashing things down. And so when it says in Psalm 96, let the sea roar. When it says in Psalm 98, our text for this morning, let the sea roar and all that fills it. What it's saying is that anything in that metaphorical sense that would be in the sea that is in any way associated with evil or chaos or disruption is now silenced. Instead, the sea itself and all that's in it is roaring in joy for God. This idea of heaven and nature singing, we don't, we don't tend to think about that all that much. For, for one, we're so individualized and only thinking about ourselves, and, and so we don't even think about God's covenant family all that much. We just kind of think about our own existence. But, but we forget, right, that the psalm and the song inspired by the poem, inspired by the psalm, <laughs> says... He came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Genesis chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, we'll talk about uh, the seed of the woman being promised to crush the head of the serpent. But remember, the ground is cursed because of Adam's and Eve's sin. Verse, chapter, chapter 3, verse 17 Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Right? The, the ground itself is cursed. The earth itself is not the way it ought to be. Paul in Romans chapter 8 picks up this um, botanical imagery, this, this all-earth imagery, this, this heaven-in-nature imagery when it talks about all creation groaning as in the days of childbirth until the sons of God should be, the sons of God should be revealed. Listen to uh, Romans eight nineteen and following. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. It's this picture that we have Genesis, Romans, ultimately in Revelation of the new heavens and new earth, but here anticipated in the Psalms and in Psalm 98 of that day when even heaven and nature will sing with joy because the Lord's redemption has been fully and finally worked. So the singers, the singers are Israel. The singers are the nations. The singers are all creation. And we'll see in a minute how we are called to sing as well. But, but next, let's look at the song. Look back at verse 1 with me, Psalm 98. 
Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. What is this new song? I mean, they sang this song every time they got together. So you can imagine people going, when are we going to sing a new song? We keep singing this song. <laughs> sing to the Lord a new song. Alec Matir, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, said, you know, the, the better way to understand this is not so much as a, a new song as in something newly composed, but as a, a fresh song. There's been a fresh expression of God's grace. There's been a fresh revelation of his truth. There's been a fresh experience of God's steadfast love toward his people. And so there's an opportunity for a fresh song to be sung. It's the same song. It's just freshly sung because there's been a greater experience, a revelation of that singular grace of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. In the same way that Lamentations chapter 3 says the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning. His mercy never comes to an end. God is unchanging. Is his steadfast love new? Or is it just a fresh expression of his unchanging steadfast love? It is. And so our fresh song is always a response to a fresh experience of his steadfast love, of his unchanging mercy toward us. So it is first a fresh song. But it's also a forth-telling song. You know the, the third one I'm going to do here is going to start with an F, right? This is what we do. We like to alliterate. So a, a, a fresh song, a forth-telling Song. It's interesting in verses 4 through 6, if we can come back and put ourselves in this psalm, which we will be able to do, and we must be able to do. But if we can put ourselves in this psalm, as I'll show in a minute, we can do, then think about verses 4 through 6. This is us saying, Singing, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. So we are the ones who are now singing. And as we sing, we're inviting the world to sing, to join into this chorus with us, this song of praise to God. I've got a book on my shelf titled uh, Questioning Evangelism, how we can do evangelism by asking questions. I guess we could write one based on this verse in Psalm 98, verses 4 through 6. And we could call it singing evangelism. Because there's a sense in which the joy of God's people and the salvation that God has worked for them and the, the resulting way of living that's like a song is itself an invitation to people who don't yet know the saving God to enter into his joy and sing. We're a forth-telling people. When we sing this song, we're singing the song of what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. But it's also forth-telling in the sense that we're telling about the King who will one day return. And so, it's a future song. It's a fresh song. It's a forth-telling song. It's a future song. Look at verse 9. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. 
He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There is a day that is coming in which Jesus will return. And he will judge the world with equity. What does this mean? How can can the coming judgment of God be a cause for singing? Well, the way in which judgment is used here, and so often through the Psalms, is not simply, it certainly is this, not simply God coming to, to judge evil, but it's also this idea of a king, this is very much a pointing to a king who is coming, who will execute his rule in such a way that justice is done. In other words, everything will be set right. Everything that's crooked will be made straight. Everything that's broken will be healed. Everything that causes deep sorrow and grief will be healed. This is the day that is coming. This is the day that we live each of our days now in light of. The day in which everything will be set right because King Jesus has returned. It's a future song that we invite the world to sing. And on that day when Jesus returns, the weary world and all the redeemed in it will rejoice. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. In Psalm 98, Jesus is inviting his people to celebrate his salvation and joyfully anticipate his return. We have every reason to sing because Jesus has secured our joy by achieving his. The author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What happened at the cross? Where did God's right hand and holy arm work salvation for him? It was on the cross. It was there in the terrible coming down of the holy arm of God in judgment on Jesus that our salvation was secured. It was there that sin and evil were defeated and death was dealt its death blow. It was there that the steadfast love and faithfulness of God found its full expression. And from the tomb, Jesus rose, confirming to us that everything he ever said is true, mission accomplished, he will return and he will set things right. Until then, it seems, doesn't it, that there are fresh reminders every day that things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. Until then, there are fresh reminders today that things are not yet the way they will one day be. But until that day, there are fresh reminders this day and every day that they one day will be. There are fresh reminders this day and every day that there are fresh mercies every day from God. There are fresh expressions of the steadfast love of God to us. There are fresh deliverances from temptation, from hopelessness, and from despair. There are fresh, there's fresh forgiveness when we sin and turn to God in repentance and faith. And with each of these, 
there are fresh reasons to sing. Until that great day, when we sing that new song that Revelation 5 tells us, that song of salvation unto God, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, the Lamb of God. Until we sing of his praises in some new and fresh way forever. Now, often in a minor key, but joyfully nonetheless, we sing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to be those who, whose hearts are filled with joy, even as they are in so many ways filled with, with sorrow. Lord, this, this is a mystery to us. How can we be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? Lord, it must be because we're living in light of that day, even as we suffer and struggle on this day. So would you make us a joyful people? A people that are ever singing, whether we're vocalizing it or not, our life is like a song in which we are singing of your joy and people see, they hear, and they wonder. Lord, may it be that between the first advent and your second, many people, many whom we know and love, all whom we know and love, oh God, let them cry out to you and join in the chorus. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.